Good morning, church. Amen. Great to be with you in the house of the Lord today. Thank you for joining with us this morning. For those of you that uh, were in the, we didn't have a 10 a.m. Last, last weekend. It was 9.30 or, what was it, 9, 9.30 or 10, 11? I don't even remember the service times. If you came in the middle of the day, you've got a little bit more, a little bit more elbow room today. Last Sunday was a bit of a madhouse in those two middle services. So, um, so hey, if you're here today for the first time and you feel like uncomfortably squeezed, you have no idea. Uh, this, this is a low crowd. We are glad you're here, though. And I'm excited to get into the Word with you today. And I'm super excited about next Sunday. You just heard about New Life Sunday with all the water baptisms, recognizing new members. Listen, if you don't care about that stuff, come next weekend for the baby dedications. We have the most adorable babies being dedicated. I know we'll probably say that next time too, but man, I'm telling you, it's going to be exciting next weekend. But one thing that I'm really, I'm really geared up for today, and that is that next weekend we are introducing the launch of our brand new life group material. We are unveiling it next week. It's called Unveil. And I want to just tell you a little bit today in the message. I want to tease up those topics. There's five weeks in the series. And I want to spend the rest of the time today speaking to you about why Life Group matters. This is not an infomercial. You might not have called it Life Group in the past. You might have called it Cell Groups. You might have called it Small Groups. You might be Old School. You called it Sunday School. I don't care what you call it. I'm talking about the emphasis in the Scripture on community. So I want to speak about that today for a few moments. But first, let me just start with without assuming too much uh, internal language life groups or whatever you might call them when I say life groups I'm speaking about Christian community that does life together talking about more than than a time slot on Sunday morning and the scripture is filled with imagery of veils this word was just in my heart at the beginning of this year And as we began to gear up for this life group season, there's several veils in the Word of God that that I think are going to find application in your life and mine. The first ones that come to mind are the one in the tabernacle that Moses built and in the temple that a few generations later Solomon would build, that permanent structure where God would come and inhabit and dwell with the people in what was called the Holy of Holies. Right outside of that holy space was a curtain or a veil. And that was the the protective curtain from the awesome power of God. That that no one could just come into God's presence. In fact, there there was a time or two where the Ark of the Covenant that was in that holy place came out of that holy place. And one time, somebody tried to touch it and they died. So it was a serious thing to approach the presence of the living God under the old covenant. And so there was a veil that kept them outside and protected them from the judgment that would come in the presence of a holy God. But it was more than that, because the priests would go in, and they would make a sacrifice there, and the atonement would be made for the sins of the people. So the veil was the access point of the mercy of God. That's what it was. It was the place where you tap into God's grace in your life. That's why that image of that veil was so significant when you come into the New Testament, And the Bible says that when Jesus hung on the cross on Good Friday and he breathed out his last breath, he declared in a loud voice, John says, it is finished. And when he did that, something miraculous 
happened. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 51, at that very moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, a man didn't rip it from the bottom to the top. God separated that veil from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split. That moment was so significant because it signified to everyone serving in the temple and for all of us today that mercy is no longer accessed through a sacrificial system. I'm so glad as your pastor this morning, I didn't have to put on a butcher's apron this morning to receive your offering of worship to the Lord. I would much rather you stand there, lift your hands and sing than to bring a cow for me to slaughter up here on the altar. And so that moment, the veil that was ripped says that the the mercy of God is no longer accessed through this system anymore. Now we come to the mercy of God through the veil of Jesus. We come by the access that we have in Christ. There's another veil that Jesus spoke about. He he said the religious leaders of the day were blind, blind guides. He said they were blind guides because there was a veil over their understanding of the scripture. When they, when they tried to understand it, they couldn't understand the scriptures. In fact, even when Jesus met Saul of Tarsus, some of you remember that story in Acts 9, on the road to Damascus, he's the most religious of religious people. And he's on his way to persecute Christians and Jesus just stops him in his tracks right there on that Damascus road. The Bible says that in that story, literal scales fell off of Saul's eyes. It it was a a, a miraculous illustration of what God wants to happen in the life of every person that surrenders fully to him. Not coming to God through man-made rituals or religious traditions, but coming to God with a pure heart and clean hands. And he said, scales fell from his eyes. Then Paul, later, same guy wrote a letter to the church. In fact, if you have your Bible, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians with me. I I want you to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's writing a letter to the church, and he's talking about this veil that he is well aware of, that, that blinds the eyes of religious people. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says in verse 15, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Can I tell you what, what God wants to do in this season for some of you is he wants to lift the veil of a works-based approval with himself. Some of you, your eyes are still blinded. You still feel like if I do this, if I don't do that, if I show up here, if I stop showing up there, if I get all these things right, check all the boxes, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, then God will accept me. Then I can breathe a sigh of relief in church this morning. And I'm telling you, God wants to remove that veil. God wants you to get a revelation of the loving Father that sent His Son to die for you, that you can come just as you are into His presence. The religious leaders didn't understand that. God wants to unveil our eyes. He wants to unveil our hearts to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. There's another veil that we're going to talk about in the Life Group series. And the Bible actually begins and ends with a picture of a wedding. If you think about it, in in Genesis, the Bible says that God took on the role of father of the bride it says specifically and he brought her to the man so he made the woman and then he brought her to the man 
And then in Revelation, we get another wedding picture. But in the first wedding, the groom was the first man, the first Adam. In the second wedding, at the end of the book, we get what 1 Corinthians 15 calls the last Adam. The groom is none other than Jesus, and the bride is the church. And so we get this picture of the wedding veil. And the wedding veil, it it communicates being set apart. It communicates being sanctified, being holy, being preserved for something and someone special. And then the veil also speaks to us about an invitation to intimacy. Can I get a married amen this morning? Anybody in the house? Okay. You understand the the message in the veil. There's, There's intimacy beyond the veil. And it speaks to us from God's word about his invitation to us. For a deeper relationship. Some of you are still deciding if it was okay to laugh at that right now. I can tell. You're like. Marriage conference. Sign up by Wednesday. I'm going to resist the urge to preach on marriage now. But there are, there are pictures for us all throughout the word of God. And I don't have time to unpack them all today. But I want you to know that there is a, a powerful powerful picture, the most powerful veil picture in the scripture. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 and and in verse 20, and I, I love it in the New King James Version because it speaks to us about that veil that the high priest would go through to make sacrifices, the, the access point of mercy. And then it says this, we enter by a new and living way, which he, Jesus, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Aren't you thankful we have access into God's presence through Jesus today? Amen. That's, that's the testimony of the church. That we can come before God in Jesus' name. That he himself became the veil for us. In, in our life group series, One of the other veils we're going to talk about is the one that Moses wore. Exodus 34 says that Moses put a veil over his face when he would come off of the mountain. He would meet with God, and he came off the mountain, and because he had been in God's presence, his face was literally glowing. Like the radiance of God's glory was on his face, and the people were afraid. And so Moses put a veil over his face. Now, I'm just going to take a guess here in the 10 a.m. service that none of you have that problem. Just... Just going to venture to say that no one's probably afraid of the glory of God on you. You're like, it's so powerful. You're like, you know what? I should just, I should just cover, my, cover my face this morning because I'm a little too spiritual for your presence. Now, the really spirit, the other folks, they're already going to lunch. They were here earlier. It was. <laughs> but honestly, we don't have that problem, right? But when Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 3. He actually reveals the motive that Moses had for putting the veil on. And it was more than just the fear that the people had on their faces. In fact, I I want you to see this here in, in 2 Corinthians 3. Back it up to verse 13, and it says this. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. So, oh, oh, there's more to it here. So what... What Paul is saying is that Moses wasn't just putting a veil on because the people were afraid of how awesome the glory was. The fact is, it was awesome on Sunday, but by Friday, the glory wasn't so bright. Now can you relate to Moses? 
I was feeling really spiritual when I came off the mountain on Easter, but, you know, it's been a long week. And so he would put the veil on so that they couldn't see that the glory was diminishing from his face. And, and we're not going to take time to unpack this today. You've got to join a life group to get the depth of it. But, but Paul starts explaining to the people how different the glory that Moses had in the old covenant is from the glory that we have because we don't come through the veil of a temple curtain. We come through the veil of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. We have a greater glory. So he, just listen to this part of this. He says in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 3, verse 9, If the ministry that brought condemnation, that was the old covenant law, was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory at all compared to the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory, that means it was fading, it was diminishing, it was, it was good for a season... If that came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? And so then he says, therefore, like in light of that revelation, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Can we all just read that verse out loud together? Help me out. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Bold. Can I just tell you, church, you can be bold in your faith. You can be bold in your faith. I, uh, Pastor Chris and several of these students were at the Spirit Tour last week. And my daughter, Mally, she's in eighth grade. She's actually in this service. She got some church merch at the merchandise booth. And, uh, and then I was dropping her off at school this last week. And uh, pulled up to the middle school, and, and she jumped out, and she's walking in. And as she's walking in, that's when I see the back of her hoodie that she bought. And it says in big letters on the back of the hoodie, full-time Christian. I was like, that's awesome. She's just rolling into that campus. You can be bold in your faith, church. And we don't walk in with boldness because we have this false sense that we know better than everybody else or that we always get it right and we never get it wrong. No, we have a boldness because the glory that is beheld behind the veil of the blood of Jesus has been revealed in our lives. We have boldness because of the glory of God. Jeremiah, I love the revelation he got about our confidence in Jeremiah 9, verse 23, it says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this. That they have the understanding to know me, says the Lord. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. God, God's saying through Jeremiah, you've got a right to boast. You've got a right to be loud and proud, full-time Christian. Not part-time. Not nights and weekends. Full-time. Overtime. Come on. He said, you can be bold, be bold in this, that you know me, that you know my nature, that I'm a God of kindness, I'm a God of justice. He didn't say you can be uh, antagonistic, he didn't say be a jerk, 
He didn't say look down on people. He didn't say use your Christianity as a political platform. But he said you can be bold. And so when Paul's just relishing in the glory of the new covenant, he says, therefore, we are very bold. And then, and then he follows that statement with verse 13 where we started. Look at it again. 2 Corinthians 3.13. He follows that with saying, we are not like Moses. Because we all know what Moses did. But I, I want to, for the rest of our time, I want to push back on that just a little bit and ask, are we? Are we? Are we like Moses? Do we, do we conceal the diminishing glory of God in our lives? Are we feigning spirituality when we come into his house to worship? Do we put on the glory like a pair of church clothes? I mean, let's be honest, it's easy, right? It's easy. It's easy to do it. There's a real temptation to, to want to just be a, what I would call an Instagram believer. An Insta-Christian, if you will. That's the ones that are always very careful to, to always filter their image. To always make sure that they put their faith in just the right light. To crop out all the ugly things in the background, in the backdrop of your story. The, the Insta-Christian is, you know, is really the kind of person that can, man, you struggle on, on Friday night. You had a, a hard week and, and a difficult weekend. And man, your faith almost slipped. And you just by faith and will and dogged determination, you drug yourself into the house of the Lord. And then your brother, your sister says, hey, man, how you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored. How are you? Right? You're struggling. I mean, you've been sitting at the kitchen table for three hours trying to figure out how to make ends meet. How are we going to pay these bills? How am I going to pay that back? How are we going to do? And then somebody asks you, you know, on the weekend, man, how are you doing? Man, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Isn't it easy to do that? I mean, you know, you're, you're struggling in your relationship. Your, your kids won't talk to you. There's tension in your marriage. You can just bokeh that right out, just out of focus. Just, just leave that in the backdrop and come on in on Sunday morning like everything's just fine, everything's going good. Now, now what's wrong with that? What's wrong with doing that? Because let's be honest, none of us actually want Sunday morning to become laundry day, right? Like none of us want to show up on Sunday morning where everybody just puts their stains out on the line and we can all look at everybody's faults and yep, yep, that's pretty bad. Yep, you're messed up too. Yep, you're messed up too. We don't want Sunday to look like that. See, the real problem is not with how we do church on Sunday. The real problem is when Sunday is the only time we do church. There's nothing wrong with this hour. Thank God for this hour. My faith is high for what God's going to do in this hour. But if this hour is the only hour, you don't understand what the church is. Because ultimately, the church is not a place we go. It's a people. And more than that, it's a family. The church that Jesus launched was not a crowd of weekend spectators. It was a family of daily participants. When you read about the church in the New Testament, you understand that, yes, it started as a crowd gathered, but it grew as a community was scattered. As they went out from a central place in deep covenant relationship forced out 
outside of the gathering space. You read Acts chapter 2 and you can see that the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, the Holy Spirit descends. You know the Holy Spirit descends because there's a physical reaction when the Holy Spirit comes. They begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. Nobody left the upper room wondering if they got it. Like, the Holy Spirit showed up and the gifts were on display. And they came out and people saw that and they heard it. Verse 5 says this. Now there were staying in Jerusalem at that time, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, how many of you know when the Holy Spirit moves, it might get loud? It might get loud. Don't start them. They love that song too much. They heard something. And it says this, a crowd came together in bewilderment. I thought this week, if we start a bus ministry, we ought to name it in bewilderment. Like, just name the bus bewilderment. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, just everybody's coming. They're not coming because we're giving away prizes or Easter eggs. They're coming because the Holy Spirit is being outpoured and people are acting different because of it. And they're, they're not coming like, oh, this looks great. They're coming going, what in the world is happening here? They show up in bewilderment. And then it says, because each one heard their own language being spoken. So, in other words, something supernatural, unnatural, unexplainable was happening in that moment. That's how the church started. But when you skip ahead to Acts chapter 8, persecution has broke out. And it says in verse 4 that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. In other words, when the persecution got so bad that they could not literally come together and just have church the way that the church likes to have church. What advanced the gospel was that these close-knit communities began to be scattered outside of their comfort zones into new areas. Thank God we don't live in that reality today in America. We, we still can come here and sit on padded chairs and air-conditioned rooms and with, with lyrics on the screen, and we can worship together. I don't know if we'll always have that privilege in our lifetime or not, but what I want you to see is that the church did not fold under persecution because they understood that the church was not just a crowd gathering. It was a community of people that were in deep fellowship with one another. The unstoppable power of the church has never been the size of the crowds. It's always been the depth of community. That's always been the power of the church. And can I just say, that's why you need a life group. I'm not pushing a program today. This is not an infomercial. You need to be in community with other believers. You need to move beyond rows into circles. You need to move into conversation. There needs to be a place in your faith that you can go beyond the veiled glow of this experience. I, I, I'm not calling you a hypocrite. I'm not saying you're not being authentic this morning. I'm just saying we can't go there with everybody. This would be a really chaotic counseling session if we tried that, right? Like, we can't go there. Like, we got to just put on faith and say, you know what? God is good. I'm going to bless his name, and I'm going to leave my issues in the car. Or at the altar, better yet. But, but I can't talk to anybody about my problem in this moment. One guy gets the mic. But if we're going to go to where God wants us to go, then we have to say, you know what? There's more, there's more to God's plan for the church than one hour on the weekend. There's more that God has. We have to go deeper in community, church. We have to go beyond the veil 
of occasional, occasional encounters with God and his people. You know, the, the Bible, in the New Testament alone, there are 59 places where we're commanded to do something to or for one another. 59, almost 60 places that tell us specifically, as the church, we should do this for them. Do, I love the way Pastor Andy Stanley says it. He says the, the primary activity of the church seems to be one anothering one another. Like, like, what's the church supposed to do? When you read it, they're all of a sudden doing this for one another, doing that for one another. And a lot of those things we read about, like being kind to one another, serving one another, waiting for one another, gently, patiently tolerating one another. How many of you know that's, that one takes some work sometimes? But those things, they flow supernaturally. I almost said naturally, but they flow supernaturally out of your relationship with Jesus. But none of those things are done unto Jesus. They're done unto other people. That, that means that in order for you and me to fulfill the command of God and the purpose that he has for the church, we have to be involved with other people. We have to be in Christian community. And maybe no scripture in the New Testament says it more clearly than Galatians 6.2. Because in Galatians 6.2 it says that we are to bear one another's burdens. It means to come alongside, to help carry the load, to lift each other up. And he says, when you do that in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Like, this is how you obey Jesus, he says. And what is the law of Christ? Well, Jesus said clearly in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, you know, when he said that to him, they thought, well, that's not a new command. Love one another, that's in, the old, that's in the old covenant too. It's not like, some people think like the old covenant was a harsh, angry, judgmental God, and the new covenant's like happy, you know, tap, pat the children on the head, Jesus, you know. No, God's been a God of love from the beginning. God is love. And so Jesus says, a new command, I give you love one another, but he wasn't finished. He said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Oh, that's different. That's different. How many of you remember what happened last Friday? We celebrated the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Jesus died for them. And he said, so here's the new commandment. The way that I loved you, that's how you love one another. You give sacrificially of yourself. And the only way we can do that is in the context of community. It is essential to our obedience to Jesus Christ that we do more than just attend. The word of God that was spoken to, to my heart for our church in 2022 is wilderness. I, I, we preached a whole series on the wilderness earlier this year. We, we followed the story of God's people and how Moses led them out of bondage and the wilderness was a place of deliverance and how God provided for them. And it was a place of discipleship and then and they exited the wilderness into the promised land and and we see that whole story but I, I love this thought that I read from author Erwin McManus he said this from my vantage point if we were to engage the Bible as a study of human sociology the word that would emerge is tribe the entire journey of Israel is about becoming a people. In fact, 
If the scriptures are to be taken seriously, there is no journey toward God that does not bring us to each other. Think about that. Your tribe. And I just, I just can't help but wonder when I read that thought, maybe God's plan for your life in 22 is that you would find your tribe. Maybe God's key for the wilderness this year is that you would come out the other side knowing who your people are. That you're not just some spiritual lone ranger out there trying to just make your way and kind of pop in occasionally and, and you know, hi, God bless you, God bless you, how are you doing, same as last week. But you would actually know people and they would know you. That you would have an intimate relationship that, that people know your story. I love the book of Ruth. It tells the story of three widows. Naomi and her husband Elimelech they, and their two sons, they leave Judah because there's a famine, they go down to Moab. While they're there, they meet these two beautiful Moabite women, and their sons marry them. I don't know if it's because of the famine or a, a tragedy. We don't get all the details, but all the men died. Elimelech and his two sons died, so now there's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Ruth and Orpah, they're living together. And so Naomi says, listen, girls, um, I'm going back to Bethlehem. I'm going back home to my people. You should go back to your moms. Just go back to your own homes and, and try to get a fresh start. Now, uh, pick up the story with me in Ruth chapter 1, verse 14 says, At this, the girls wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I will stay. And, and this is the salvation moment in her story. She says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And, where, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you from me. You know, I had this funny thought. Next week, we're recognizing new members on New Life Sunday. I thought, maybe verse 17 should be our covenant. Like, that's, that's intense, right? Like, I'm with you. May God judge me ever so severely if anything but death separates me from you. Like, I mean, come on. Ruth is like, I am all in. It's because she understood something. You don't just come to God as a child. You come into a family. You come into a family. And so Ruth understood, like, I, I can't go back to Moab. I can't go back to those gods. I can't go back to my, my biological family. I came into a covenant. Your God is now my God. So you are my family. Where you go, I'm, I'm with you. Ruth discovered her tribe. And with that, she discovered her destiny. That she would give birth to a son who would give birth to a son who would become an heir to the throne David's throne. She's in the lineage of Jesus because she understood something that all of us need to remember, and that's this. Your best future is waiting in your deepest relationships. Think about that. Your best future is waiting in your deepest relationships. Think about your own family. I've said many times, if I pour my heart 
and my soul into building this church, and then my three daughters graduate high school, and at the same time, they graduate their faith, I will call all of this an exercise in futility. I will consider everything that God's used me to build here an absolute failure. Absolute, utter, dismal failure. Why? Because I know my best future is waiting in my deepest relationships. And if these girls go off and marry a bunch of heathens, and and I got messed up grandkids, come on. I mean, some of you, you're like, oh, that marriage, that marriage seminar sounds good. Man, 50 bucks, I don't know. Hey, 50 bucks for the most important relationship in your life? You get the books, you get the chicken sandwich, you get the whole deal. Right? Your best future is waiting in your deepest relationship. Ruth got that, and she's like, I am not, do not ask me to leave you again. I wish people felt that way about their church. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. How many of you know this is not a sprint? It's a marathon. It's a marathon. Ruth said to Naomi, she said, I'm with you. And I just wonder this morning, who are the people that you would say, like, I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, outside of your immediate family, hopefully you can say that if you're married or to your children or your parents. But I... I mean, in your church, who can you say, I'm with you? I'm bound to you. When you look at the New Testament church, you discover that when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was launched, yes, there was a crowd that gathered, but pretty quickly after that, there was a community that was formed, a deep-rooted community. I don't have time this morning to, to read it to you, but in your own time, go and just read the, the final paragraph of Acts chapter 2, that day of Pentecost experience from verse 42 down to about 47. It lists all these incredible things that started happening naturally in the life of the church. They, they began to study the apostles' teaching. They started diving into the Word of God. That's what life group is, by the way. It's different than getting together for Monday night football and eating wings with the guys and watching the game. Now, they're both awesome. An intentional Christian community is centered on Christ, not the NFL. Do you understand the difference? They they gathered together, and yes, they had fun, I'm sure, and they, they played games, and they ate whatever they ate in that time, but they centered on Christ. They taught the word. They devoted themselves to love. It says no one had need. In other words, they all cared for one another in that community. It says that they, they ate together. How many of you think that's of God? Yeah, life group's always better when you eat together. Let me just... Let me just say, I mean, if there's, you know, some good chips and queso, like, I can deal with a flop, you know, on the, the Bible study, you know. I've endured some bad Sunday night services in my life just for a good potluck afterwards. I'll just, like, you can redeem a lot with snacks. This is the Word of God. They broke bread daily. They ate together with sincere hearts. You know, one of the things life groups do is they, uh, they prayed for one another. They prayed for one another. I mean, it's awesome to stand up on a Sunday and for all of us to lift our voices toward heaven. But can I tell you what's really sweet, what's really powerful, is when someone sits beside you on the couch or kneels down in front of you in their living room and and says your name and carries you like a high priest before the throne of God. There's something powerful in that. The church had community. They prayed for one another. They helped each other. And I just wonder today, who's your tribe? 
do you know? There's nothing wrong with the way we're doing church. I love this moment. I'm just telling you, if this is the beginning and end all of church, you've missed it. You've missed it. One final verse I want to give you out of that text in 2 Corinthians 3, because this is my prayer. And as we get ready to launch this life group season, and and even as we get ready to end this service today, I want you to know this is my heart's desire for you. As our worship team comes, I want you to see 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Here's what it says. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's my desire for you. That's my desire for me, that, that I wouldn't just put on a veil of spirituality, that, that I wouldn't hide behind inauthenticity, but that I would come before the Lord, that you would come before the Lord with an unveiled face. Like, just warts and all. I'm just letting God see the real me. And that as you behold the glory that we have access to through Jesus, that you would be transformed into his image. That the Holy Spirit would do that work. You know, we, we sang earlier, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Holy Spirit, be forever near. But I'm telling you, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and do that work, it ain't going to happen. We'll be like the, the religious leaders. Jesus said they're like blind guides. They try to understand it. They don't understand it. There's a veil over their understanding. What do we need? We need the Holy Spirit to show up and to draw us into the very presence of Jesus so that we can behold his glory with an unveiled face. The Bible says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into his presence? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That means their intentions are right. Their heart is pure, but their hands are clean. It means they're, they're unveiled. Like there's, there's nothing, nothing hidden. Honesty, authenticity with God. I want to pray for you. Would you stand with me as we just honor the presence of the Lord in these closing moments? Maybe you're here today and you've got that, you got that Sunday morning glow up, you know? <laughs> like everything just looks great. God's countenance is on your face. But maybe inside you, you feel a thousand miles away from the Lord. Can we just be real with God in this moment and just take that veil off before the Lord? Can I just invite you to to move right now into his presence? To move into his presence. Say, how do I do that? Faith. Faith. We just move in by faith. The word of the Lord says we enter into his gates with thanksgiving. We come into his courts with praise, not with arm twisting, not with begging. We just move right in. We're invited right in. I want to invite you right where you're standing to just move in. Father, today I thank you that we have an invitation to go beyond the veil, the place where mercy is accessed, the point where grace is poured out for us, the veil of Jesus' body. 
that was crucified for us on the cross. Lord, I thank you that today we can come in Jesus' name and by his blood and we can access the very throne of God. Lord, we want to just get a glimpse this morning of how good you are. We want to get a glimpse of how awesome you are. Lord, we don't want to boast in our wisdom, in our wealth, in our riches. Lord, we want to make our boast in the name of the Lord. And that we can know your loving kindness and your goodness and your righteousness and your justice. Lord, this morning, I pray the prayer that you told Moses to have the priest pray over all the people. Lord, would you bless your people. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Lord, would you let your countenance shine on us. And as we behold your glory, Lord, may we be transformed into the image of Jesus. In Jesus' name, Lord.